In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O Lord, for this day. We ask for your blessing. We ask for your strength. Be with us, O Lord, during this time, and help us, O Lord, to focus on your word. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hear us as we pray thankfully, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus, our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Uh, good evening, everybody. Um, God willing, today we're going to continue studying um, in the book of Genesis. Um, last time we spoke, uh, well, last time we had a guest speaker, but the week before, uh, we spoke about uh, Genesis 15 and 16. Um, in Genesis 15, uh, we read about how God reaffirmed the covenant with Abraham, and we talked about the unique ritual, um, which was called the blood covenant or the blood path uh, ritual, which was um, an ancient ritual uh, where two people would um, make a, a covenant with one another, and how God made this covenant with Abraham, and what was unique about this covenant, and the way that it was done is that essentially, even though um, under nor normal circumstances, um, the way the covenant is done is that if one or the other of the parties were breaking, were to break the terms of the agreement, then essentially they would be um, subjecting themselves to, to death, uh, you know, saying that they are willing to die if they break the covenant. Um, whereas in the way that God did it um, is that he was saying essentially that even if Abraham were to uh, fail to meet the terms of the agreement, which is obedience to God, essentially that God would actually be the one to die on his behalf. And so, of course, in this case, Abraham represents all of humanity, um, all the people of God that were to come after him, which tells us something about this, the process of salvation, that God is um, coming for our salvation to offer us salvation um, because we are the ones that broke the covenant. And yet he is the one who is taking the consequence of that um, on, upon himself. So that was in chapter 15. Um, and then in chapter 16, uh, we spoke about Abra uh, Abram and Sarai um, and how they did not have a son. And so they decided to try to have a son by having um, Abram have a relationship with Hagar, uh, the maidservant. And they had a son whose name was Ishmael. Um, but uh, uh, Hagar and Sarai did not have a good relationship because she despised her and was jealous because she was able to have a son. Um, but God told Hagar that she would make her son to be a mighty nation and told her to go back and to live and to submit herself uh, to Sarai. Um, and so up until this point in the story, um, the understanding that um, Abram and Sarai have is that um, Ishmael is the chosen, uh, is the, the promised child that God has uh, chosen to be the heir of Abram, who is going to uh, bring about all those future generations that God has promised to Abram, okay? Um, and so right now when we're starting here in Genesis 17, um, Abram is 99 years old. And so at this point in time, uh, Ishmael is about uh, 13 years old, okay? So just to give us context um, as the story continues, okay? So in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. It says, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am almighty God, walk before me and be blameless. And I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. Then Abram fell on his face and God talked with him saying, as for me, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. So here, when, when God is speaking about himself, and he says, I am almighty God, and then he says, walk before me and be blameless. These two um, uh, kind of statements uh, show kind of a relationship between us and God. God reveals himself as who he is, as he is the almighty he is the almighty God. He is the Pantocrator. He is, he is the one who is able to do all things. And, and he has made a covenant with Abraham, essentially saying that he is going to do all these things that he's promised, meaning that he's going to become a father of many nations. 
But then he, he tells Abraham, walk before me and be blameless. Like this is Abraham's role in this. You know, so sometimes we, um, you know, we, we try to do a lot of things or we want to be in control of a lot of things. A lot of things that we are actually not able to control at all. Like we are, we are not able to control the situation around us. We're not able to control other people. We're not able to control our boss at work. We're not able to control health issues. We're not able to control so many things, right? Because we are not Almighty God. We are the Pantuk we are not the Pantocrator. God is, right? And God here is promising to Abram that he is going to take care of everything. It's like, don't worry, Abraham, how this is going to happen. Don't worry. I mean, even from the previous chapter, when Abraham and, and, and Sarai are trying to like get involved in being in control, right? Because they're like, well, um, we have to do something. We can't just not do anything. So how about we try with Hagar to have the son, right? Because they looked at themselves and they said, we are so old. How is it that we're going to have a son? So they said, okay, maybe Hagar was going to be the solution, right? They're trying to be in control. They're trying to tweak things. They're trying to change things. They're trying to be active in, in, in taking control of things, right? Whereas God never told them to do so. And actually God never even revealed to them how is it that the son would come or when the son would come or anything, right? So God is saying, just leave it up to me. Just leave it to me. I am the almighty God, right? I am the almighty God. So what is it that's your role, you know, Abraham? What is your job? Your job is to walk before me and be blameless, right? And this here is we see the covenant relationship between Abraham and God, right? God says, I will take care of everything. I'm in control. Don't worry about anything. Your, your job is to obey me, right? Your job is to listen to me. Your job is to follow my commandments, right? And in so doing so, right, you will reap all of the benefits. You will reap all of the promises. You will, you will reap everything that I have promised you. Right. So unfortunately, we often try to do the, the role of God. We try to do God's part. Right. And instead of doing our part, we focus so much on how to control things and how to change things. But when it comes to our own like personal spiritual life. Right. Can any of us really look at our life and say, well, yes, we are w walking before God blamelessly. You know, like that's a that's a very high standard for us to live up to. The question is, is are we even trying to live up to the standard? Are we, are, we, are we focusing so much on the outside world, on the external life? How much are we focusing on the inner life? How much am I focusing on my own inner communication with God, my spiritual life with God, my prayer before God, walking before God blamelessly, desiring and seeking to obey him, desiring to, 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 to you know, reject the things that he hates and to go after the things that he loves? Right. Am I am I doing this? Right. Because God says, don't worry about my part. You just worry about your part. So it's important for us to um, kind of understand this. Right. That we have a role. God has a role and they're very different. And God says, just trust me with all the details that you can't control and you can't change. And you focus on your part. OK, your part, which is just to walk before me blameless. So here we see. Um, as a result, again, God continues to affirm and confirm and establish this covenant repeatedly with Abraham, telling him, right? And so here again, right, in this chapter, he says, I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly, okay? And so Abram is listening now to God and, and, and God says, I'm going to change your name, okay? I'm going to change your name. And this idea of changing the name is a very significant event, right? Um, you know, if anyone who has been ordained, for instance, to the priesthood um, gets a new name, right? And, you know, speaking personally about that, it's, it's a very big deal to have a new name. You know, it, people refer to you with a different name. People see you as a different person. It's not just a, a, a change, like that's an external change. It's a change of identity right? It's a change of identity. There's a lot of things that we can change about ourselves, like external changes. Like we might be able to change the way we look, the color of our hair, the length of our hair, the clothes we wear, like things like that, that we are still the same person. And, and, you know, we just make these external changes. But when you have someone who changes their name, it's not just an external change. It's a fundamental change. It's a fundamental change of identity. 
that now, and what what is this change of identity? Well, the name Abram means respectable father. That's what the name Abram means. So that's the original name that he had. The new name, Abraham, means father of nations, right? Father of nations. He's saying, I've given you a new identity. You are not just a respectable father in your own family. You are not just for your own family. You are not just like have like a small sphere of influence. You now have a gigantic sphere of influence. You now are gig- like, like, like are, are a giant, right? You are going to be referred to by all these nations as saying he is Abraham is my father, right? So again, it, it affirms that every time Abraham remembers his name, he remembers this is a, a name given to me by God to reaffirm this covenant that God has given to me. Okay, so it's not just a simple promise. It's a change of of who he is. And we have to remember also that we have been given new names, all of us, right? Not just priests when they're ordained priests. Everyone in their baptism is given a new name, right? Sometimes our names are already Christian names. And so we use the same name of of baptism. But if you think about what is the, the importance and the understanding of why we give a baptismal name, is because it's reflecting that we are a new creation. That in baptism, we we our old nature dies in the waters of baptism, and we rise up from the waters of baptism as a new creation. So, in order to help us realize and to remember and to and to, to you know to to be aware of this new creation that I have been remade into, right? That I am given a new name to remind me of this new creation. That I am different. That the course of my life from before was one direction, and now the course of my life has to be in a different direction. My identity before was one, and now my identity is is another. Here, Abraham, his whole identity is changing and reminding him that he is now the father of many nations. He is the one who is used by God. He is the one who is a patriarch, who has been chosen by God as his servant. Okay, So this change of identity should be reflecting in our actions and certainly also here in Abraham and his life and his actions. Um, now he goes on and he says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make nations of you and kings shall come from you and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you and their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Also, I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Um, It's important here because God is saying this covenant that I'm making with you is not for you only. It is for you and for all of your descendants. Because as we said before, Abraham is not going to see the outcome of this uh, covenant. He's not going to see he's not going to see the fruition uh, of this covenant because he's not going to be around when he you know when he has many many nations under him right he's not going to see the many nations at least not in not on earth right so so God is affirming that this covenant is something that he's going to make with Abraham and then he's going to make with his son who was Isaac and then he's going to make with his son which is Jacob and then he's going to make with the the sons of Jacob, which are the 12 tribes of Israel, and on and on and on. As we see the rest of the story of scripture, we see God continues to reaffirm this covenant and continues to um, uh, affirm that these are his children, these are his people. And, And here now in the New Testament, right? And we who are the believers, who are the children of God, God continues to reaffirm this covenant. And he says the same thing to us, as he said to Abraham in, in verse one, where he says, I am almighty God, walk before me and be blameless. This is the covenant that God wants to have with us and confirms with us um, every day. OK, and so this uh, in, in, uh, in verse eight here, where he says, I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger. This is the land Canaan, right, which he is currently in. And we know that this is the promised land, the land that God led the Israelites into it after they wandered for 40 years in the desert, right? The, he, he brought them into this promised land, which is the same land of Canaan. So this is what he is promising. And we certainly see the fulfillment of these promises um, later on. Okay? And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations, right? Um, 
because the covenant of God is a covenant not just with Abraham, but with all the subsequent generations. So also God is asking not only Abraham, but all subsequent generations to walk before him blamelessly, right? It wasn't enough just for Abraham to be faithful, but all the descendants after Abraham had to be faithful, right? Um, St. John the Baptist actually uh, rebuked the Pharisees because the Pharisees had a wrong understanding of what it meant to be one of the sons of Abraham. They had a wrong understanding of what it meant to be the children of God. They believed that simply because they were Jewish, simply because they could trace their ancestry back to Abraham, whom God made the covenant with, it means that they were permanently the children of God. They were the chosen people of God and Abraham was their ancestor. And so all of the promises of God applied to them. Okay. But when, when St. John the Baptist was baptizing, and the Pharisees came out to him and he rebuked them. Okay. This is what he says. He says, therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. Right. He's saying, you think you have such a special status because you are of the lineage and ancestry of Abraham. Right. But he's saying, Bear fruits worthy of repentance. If you want to be the children of God, then don't just say, well, it's because of my DNA that I am the children of God. It is because I am walking before God blamelessly. It's because I am bearing fruits worthy of repentance. It's because I'm living a life of repentance, right? This is what makes us the children of God beyond just like the, the, the marks, beyond just the, 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 the affirmation of the, and the declaration that we are, we have to live according to the guidelines. We have to live according to what it means to be a child of God, right? And when he says here, I can raise up children to Abraham from these stones, he's saying, well, who are these stones? Who are these children? He's speaking about the Gentiles, right? Because um, in, in, in the crucifixion and the resurrection, we all became, all who believe on the Lord Christ became the children of God. So it was not limited anymore to some ethnic group, right? It wasn't limited to only the Pharisees, the Jews, because they said, well, we have Abraham as our father. Now we can all say that Abraham is our father. And so God was able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones, right? All of us now, which is the church. The church is now the children of God. The church is the ancestors, uh, or sorry, the descendants of Abraham. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male child in your generations, he who is born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant. He who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money must be circumcised and my covenant shall be in your flesh uh, for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Okay, so what is it that God has done here? As with all things with us as human beings, we have to have some physical sign for us to remember for us to identify that something has happened right it's difficult for us to simply um, observe purely spiritual things and to comprehend purely spiritual things that do not have a physical component to them this is why in all of the sacraments in the church they are not purely spiritual there's a physical component right in communion there is bread and wine right in baptism there is water right? In, in, in marriage, there is a ceremony that we do, right? Instead of just asking and praying, God, please marry these two people kind of silently. No, we make a big ceremony of it, right? There has to be a physical uh, manifestation and a physical sign to remind us, right? And so here God is saying, I'm going to make a physical sign. And this physical sign is going to remind us each person of the covenant that God is making with them, okay? And so this sign is a sign of God's love, God's fellowship, God's fatherhood, right? And it's also a sign of 
the, the Abraham's part of the covenant, which is that we would walk before God and be blameless, right? Um, so, so here God says what? That he asks all of the, the male children after eight days after birth to be circumcised, okay? The number eight represents eternal life, okay? Why? Because creation, it took seven days, right? So it's kind of like you can say this world, this life, this creation that God has made took seven days to create, right? And so the number eight is like the day after. It's like what comes after this life, right? What comes after this life is eternity, right? So the number eight represents eternity, eternal life, to remind us of this is the relationship that we're having with God. It's not simply a relationship that is confined to this world of the physical, right? But it's a spiritual relationship that lasts eternally, okay? Um, also, this is not just because this is given to the males only, the sign, this is not saying that somehow the males have more privilege or glory or access to God than the female. All it means is that here the man is representing humanity because woman came from man, right? So, so here this sign in man represents the relationship and the covenant between all of humanity and God, not to say that somehow the males only had this covenant between them and God, okay? Um, so it was very important okay, um, that this circumcision be done because without the circumcision, it says, and the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people, right? Because he has broken my covenant, okay? So this circumcision was a sign, right? It, it, it didn't have any real sacramental value, right? It didn't have any spiritual value in the sense of like it wasn't actually performing any kind of spiritual act but it was a sign for this relationship and it was very important and God took this very seriously and if someone chose not to be circumcised this person was cut off from the people okay in in actually one of the things that happened to Moses as Moses was in the wilderness and after his encounter with the burning bush and as he was going back to Egypt um, to free the uh, Hebrews from the Egyptians, there is a scene uh, that happens where God is, is angry with Moses because he has not circumcised his son, right? And they circumcised his son quickly and God's like uh, anger subsides, okay? This set tells us something about, you know, this idea of circumcision, it's so important to God, right? It's so important. It's not just enough to be obedient. It's not just enough to be faithful. It's not just enough to be submissive. God here created the sign that says anyone who is not circumcised, even if you are a holy person, even if you are a righteous person, even if all of this in the Old Testament, but you are not circumcised, then you are cut off from my people. You are not among my people. Okay. So what about in the New Testament? So in the New Testament, you know, this idea of circumcision was a very uh, controversial one. Right. Because um, there was a group of Jews who converted to Christianity called the Judaizers. And these Judaizers believed that um, any Christian had to fulfill the entire law. Right. The law of the Old Testament, including circumcision. And essentially they said anyone who is a Christian in the New Testament must be circumcised in order to be among the people of God. But the church made it very clear that this was not the case and that circumcision in the Old Testament is fulfilled by baptism in the New Testament. So circumcision is a sign that not only was a physical sign on the people, right? But it, it pointed to, and it was a type of something that was to come later. And, and we see this in many of the laws and the commandments and the things that um, God asked the people to do in the Old Testament, that it had some kind of physical sign that in the New Testament would become a spiritual sign. That there would be something that it would point to, that it was like preparing the people for something that was to come later on, okay? And so in the New Testament, this circumcision was replaced by baptism, okay? Um, but again, this there, there were people that didn't understand this at first, okay? So St. Paul, he says in Colossians chapter 2, he's speaking about this point, and he says this. He says, in him, meaning in Christ, you are also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. So he's saying 
that this baptism is like a spiritual circumcision. By putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. Okay, so what is he trying to say? This, what is a circumcision? The circumcision is a cutting off of something, right? The cutting off of the flesh. So, so in baptism, right, he says what? By putting off the body of the sins of the flesh. So in the New Testament, we are, we are cutting off the body of sin, right? We are, we, are, we are being buried. We are dying. Our whole self is, is dying in the waters of baptism, right? So that a new person will come out. A new person will emerge, a new creation out of the waters of baptism. So this is why it is a spiritual baptism, right? And when we commit to cut off sin from our lives, right? This is a spiritual circumcision, okay? So um, this is why baptism is the, the circumcision of the New Testament, the spiritual circumcision, okay? Um, so in just as in the Old Testament, circumcision was a symbol of being among the people of God. So also in the New Testament, the New Testament, the baptism is the sign that we are among the people of God. And just as God took it very seriously in the Old Testament that you must be circumcised, how much more is God going to take seriously baptism in the New Testament when the Old Testament circumcision had no sacramental value, whereas in the New Testament, the baptism does have sacramental value. It, it is a mystery. It, the, the, the Holy Spirit works that we, 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 you know, our old nature dies and our new nature is, you know, emerges and we are created anew, right? So how much more then is the baptism in the New Testament so critical and important, right? And we see this um, transition happening between circumcision to baptism from Old to New Testament, okay? So this was a sign that God had made so that all of Israel from that point on, from Abraham on to the to the very end, would, would, would know that they are among the people of God and they would remember this covenant that God had made with them. Okay. Then God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And I will bless her and also give you a son by her. Then I will bless her and she will be a mother of nations, kings of peoples, shall be from her, okay? So just as um, Abram's name was changed to Abraham, and that name change was a change of identity that reflected the covenant that God had made. And, and we said that his name, Abram, meant respectable father, and he was changed to mean father of nations, right? So we have a similar change happening here with Sarah. So her, her name was Sarai. Sarai means my princess, my princess. And Sarah just means princess. Okay. So why would God ask her to change her name in this way? It's because Sarai, my princess, it's referring to that she is the princess of Abraham. Like she is the princess of the family. Okay. The, the local family, right? Whereas Sarah is princess of all the people, right? She is the mother of all of the people. She is the princess of all the people. So her name change reflects again that she's going from like small to big. She's become now also a giant like Abraham and that all people will look to her and say she is the mother, right, of the nation. Um, also here in these verses, it became clear that God is going to give him a son, okay? Uh, in verse 16, it says, I will bless her and give uh, and also give you a son by her. Right. So at this point, they had already had a son, Ishmael, who was 13 years old, and they believed that he was going to be the one who was the, the child of promise. OK. And so at this point now, Abraham is in the situation where um, and Sarah as well, like they're both very old. You know, Abraham is 99 years old at this point, and they haven't had an, a son of their own um, between the two of them, except for Ishmael, who was through Hagar. And God is saying, no. For these past 13 years, you thought it was Ishmael. It's actually not Ishmael. You're going to have a son, okay, with Sarah, okay? Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, shall a child be born to a man 
who is 100 years old, and shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said, God, oh, said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Okay, so Abraham here, if we can put ourselves in his situation, um, would be kind of like, even though he's thankful to God that he's making this covenant and that God continues to offer him these promises. But in Abraham's mind, Ishmael is here. Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Like he's, 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 he's already here. He's 13. You know, uh, he's the one that we believed all this time was going to be the one. Right. So it's difficult for Abraham to, 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 to believe that he's going to have a son and that he's asking God, why don't we just go with Ishmael? You know, Ishmael is, is, is here and he's ready to go, you know. Then God said, no, Sarah, your wife shall bear you a son and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant with his descendants after him. And the name Isaac, so, so again, Isaac is the next one in line of the covenant. And the name Isaac means laugh. So we read about how it said Abraham fell on his face and laughed. Also in the next chapter, we're also going to read about how Sarah is going to laugh. So the name Isaac laugh kind of reminds us of the reaction that Abraham and Sarah had whenever they were told that they would have him as a son because their initial reaction was to laugh, okay? Um, it was difficult for them to, to believe. And also it was a joyful event because they are, you know, God is, God is promising them this, okay? And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. And he shall beget 12 princes and I will make him a great nation. Um, we said earlier um, when we spoke about Ishmael, that he was to be the ancestor of the Arabs and the Muslim nation. And these 12 princes or the 12 sons that, that Ishmael will beget are actually listed in Genesis chapter 25. And we will get to that um, when we get there, God willing. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this set time next year. Then he finished talking with him and God went up from Abraham. Okay. Um, so, so here, um, God, again, in his covenant says, uh, Isaac is going to come from Sarah and that Sarah will, be, will bear him uh, about the same time in the following year. And we read about the faith that Abraham had and St. Paul, he mentions the faith that Abraham expressed at this moment, right? And we read this in Romans chapter four, he says, who contrary to hope, in hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations according to what was spoken. So shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. So we shouldn't consider that the laugh that he laughed meant it was like a laugh of mockery. It wasn't like a, a sarcastic laugh of mockery kind of saying like to God, it's like, there's no way this can happen. You must be joking. No, it was, it, it was a laugh of like, like maybe, um, maybe there was some, some kind of, he didn't know how this could happen. Like, you know, it was a, definitely a strange thing. There was some confusion there. But it's not that he, he doubted what God was saying or he didn't believe what God was saying, but certainly it was a time of it was a very unexpected event, right? Very unexpected. Up until these 13 years, you believe that Ishmael is going to be the son, and now you realize you're going to have a son of your own, like through Sarah, your wife. And, and this is kind of was um, an unexpected event, caused him to laugh. So Abraham took Ishmael, his son, all who were born in his house and all who were with, uh, bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's, Abraham's house and circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very same day as God has said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very same day, Abraham was circumcised in his son Ishmael. And all the men of his house, born in the house or, or bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. Okay, so we see again one of the, the hallmarks of Abraham's character 
is his, his quick obedience, his immediate obedience in everything. You know, he always, uh, like whenever God told him to do something, he did it fully, completely, immediately, right? And, and, and we see here in this case, he did exactly what God said. God said the, 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 the circumcision was a sign of the covenant. And so every male, even himself, right, circumcised um, as God has said. Okay, that's chapter 17. Does anyone have any questions about this chapter before we move on? Uh, I want a question. Um, so I don't know. I don't know if we don't. I, I don't know if we don't this before. But what did what did the name Ishmael mean? Uh, Ishmael. Yes, uh, I think I did. Uh, I don't remember now. I think we had discussed that, but I don't. I don't remember. I'll try to find that out and and let you know. Okay. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Um, all right. God hears. Is it God hears? Let me look it up real quick. I think that might be right. Yes, God hears or God will hear. Yes, thank you. Okay, chapter 18. Okay, so this, this chapter is broken up into two sections. Um, the first section speaks about the visitors that came to visit Abraham, okay? And the second section is a part where God is speaking to Abraham about the upcoming destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, okay? So the first section starts out, then the Lord appeared to him by the terebinth trees of Mamre as he was sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day. So he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing by him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the ground and said, My Lord, if I have now found favor in your sight, do not pass on by your servant. Okay. So there's more than one opinion, okay, of who these three figures were. Okay. Many of the fathers and the teachers of the church such as St. Justin Martyr, St. Irenaeus, Origen, St. John Chrysostom, all of these, they believe that these three men who came to visit Abraham were, uh, one of them was the pre-incarnate Christ, so the Lord uh, Christ, along with two angels. Okay, that's what, um, that's what they believe. The other belief, which St. Cyril of Alexandria actually holds this belief, and this is what he says. He says, I established that the episode at Mamre was a revelation of the Holy Trinity. And accordingly, Abraham, although he saw three persons, addressed them as if they were one. The three men also talked as one person. Abraham was therefore aware of the mysteries of the Trinitarian nature of God. So what is it that St. Cyril is saying? He is not saying that those three people are the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Because that is not the way God manifests himself, okay? He is saying that those three people could be either three angels or three, three humans, but are sim symbolizing the Trinity, right? They're symbolizing the Trinity. Not that they actually are the Trinity, right? But they are symbolizing of the Trinity, okay? So those are the two views. Um, the, the most commonly held view is that uh, one of them is the Lord Christ and the other are, are the two angels. That's the most commonly held view. Um, <clears throat> um, Abraham, though, at this point, um, he doesn't necessarily know this, right? He is, he's, he's going to show hospitality to these people as strangers. They are strangers coming to visit him, okay? And so he doesn't know their true nature, but he's like bowing down before them in humility and, and he's going to now prepare for them some food, right, for them to, um, to eat. Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. And I will bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh your hearts. After that, you may pass by inasmuch as you have come to your servant. They said, do as you have said. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, quickly, make ready three measures of fine meal knead it and make cakes 
And Abraham ran to the herd who took, uh, took a tender and good calf, gave it to a young man, and he hastened to prepare it. So he took butter and milk and the calf which he had prepared and set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree as they ate. Okay, so we see Abraham very, very hastening to prepare food for them, okay, to be hospitable to them, um, and like in genuineness, you know. It, it, it kind of made me think like sometimes when we have people who um, visit us, um, especially in a situation like these are strangers, like strangers, like, you know, imagine that we are doing our own thing and then some strangers come and they are hungry and, and, you know, we just stop everything and we, we make food for them of what is our own. We, we, we change our plans to accommodate them um, and we serve them. Um, and even he washed their feet, right? So, and he did so not reluctantly. Like he didn't, he didn't go to Sarah and be like, oh, we have these visitors today. And, you know, like maybe we should make them something to eat. What do you think? Like he was so like zealous and, and, and wanting to serve them. Right. And um, in Hebrews 13 too, it says, do not forget to entertain strangers for by so doing some have unwittingly entertained angels. Um, Sometimes God will test, you know, it reminds us also maybe of the story of uh, Father Beshoy, uh, uh, Saint, Saint Beshoy, um, and, and Saint Beshoy, how uh, in the story where Christ appeared as this elderly man, and only Saint Beshoy, who was the one who served this elderly man without realizing that he was Christ, was the one who got the blessing of seeing Christ, whereas all of these other monks passed by the man because they didn't have time for him, right? So, so like here he's saying um, that there are times where God might actually appear to us or, or angels might appear to us um, as a test and saying, how are you going to serve this person? You know, how are you going to serve? Uh, you know, Christ said, whatever you do to the least of these, you have done it to me. Like wh whoever is the least, whoever is the poor, you know, the, the hungry, all these people. It's like every time we do something for them, we are doing it for Christ. So here Abraham is a perfect example of this, that these three men that came, complete strangers, and yet he goes out of his way um, to serve them. Again, we see one of the great characters of Abraham, which is that he acts swiftly. He doesn't delay um, in doing good. Then they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? So he said here in the tent, and he said, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life. And behold, Sarah, your wife shall have a son. Sarah was listening in the tent door, which was uh, behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, well advanced in age, and Sarah had passed the age of, of childbearing. So um, again, he is confirming the same promise that God had made, saying that they were going to have a son. Then Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I have grown old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? And the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I surely bear a child since I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, No, but you did laugh. Then the men rose from there and looked toward Sodom, and Abraham went with them to send them on the way. Okay. So God had already told Abraham from before they would have a son, and he already told him that his name would be Isaac, okay, which again means laugh. Um, St. Augustine says about her laugh that it was not a laugh that was like out of lack of faith, but more a laugh of joy. Um, St. Clement also believes that Sarah laughed out of embarrassment rather than like a laugh that was out of uh, a lack of faith. But she, again, it was this very like difficult to understand situation for them that they were going to have a son. And this is what God was telling them. And, and these um, angels and the Lord Christ here are confirming this with them. And it tells us something again, like when God says, I am the almighty God uh, walk before me blamelessly. Right. So, so God is saying, I will take care of this. Don't worry about this. Like your job is not to worry about what is possible and what is impossible. Right in Matthew 19, it's 26. It says, "But Jesus looked at them and said to them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible.' So for us to get out of the mentality that we are that God is limited, God is limited in what He can do. 
God is limited in what he's able to accomplish. And we, we put these limits on God according to our own understanding, according to our own logic, according to our own expectation, right? But God has no limit, right? And, and we see time and time again, God has no limit. And what is it that he can do? He calls us to be faithful to him and to trust him to do what we cannot do. And here again, God is asking Abraham to do this. So um, after this encounter with these three men, Abraham takes them along the road um, as they are going to leave and go on their way. Okay. Um, and now we enter the second part of this chapter. Okay. Where, where uh, God is going to start speaking to Abraham about something that is about to happen. Okay. Um, and we start this in verse 17. It says, and the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? Okay. Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. Okay. For I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. Okay. So out of God's great love for Abraham, right, that God is deciding here to reveal something of his own mind to Abraham. He's, he's revealing something that he plans to do, which is going to be the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay. He's revealing to Abraham now that he's about to do this. Okay. And in Amos 13, verse 7, it says, Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophets. Like God chooses certain people in the world to be like um, speakers on his behalf, to be messengers, to be ones to whom he informs about the things he is doing in the world so that those people can go and teach the other people, can tell the other people about what is going to happen. Okay. So here in this case, why is it that God is about to tell Abraham what he's going to do? Why do you think he is going to tell Abraham what, that he's planning to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? As you are born, uh, uh, based on this, you know, God, you know, uh, how can I say this? Oh, yeah. You know, God no, uh, God doesn't predict what's going to happen. So in this, in this particular part that we're studying, God already knows what's going to happen. So... So, in other words, God, God is God is not like a school teacher where, where we really know the school teacher predicts what what uh, what grade uh, these students will get. So, so in other words, I'm saying, and this part that we're studying, God already knows what's gonna happen, and what and what Abraham doesn't know yet. Thank you. Yes, that is true. It is true that, you know, God knows what he is planning to do. And, and Abraham doesn't know yet what God is going to do. But why is it that, that God would reveal to Abraham why he was going to do that to begin? With? Um, someone says to show us an example of Abraham's intercession. Okay, good. So just elaborate on that. What do you mean? Like to teach us about how the prayers of the saints and the prayers of those people that are close to God, like Abraham, are heard to God, um, and how he loved God's people and he loved the people in general and he cared for them. Um, and this is why he was willing to pray for them. It's just like an example, like we learned the stories of the saints, I think. Okay, good. Um, so what is going to happen here is that Abraham is going to start interceding for the people. And we see that this is one of the things that the greatest prophets have done um, is that the, the prophets, they pray to God on behalf of the people. One of the greatest examples of this is Moses. When the people are 
that are with him are in the desert wandering and grumbling and complaining and disobeying and just being a constant, um, you know, pain. And God himself goes to Moses and he says, these people are just a constant burden. These people are just complainers. They're just, they're, 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 they're not appreciating anything. So I've decided that I'm going to destroy all of these people and I'm going to raise up for you a brand new people. Like so simple like that. Like just like God can say, oh, these people, millions, millions of people. He says, these people are not good. I'm going to, I'm going to bring you a whole new set of people for you to, to lead. Okay. Why is it that God is, God is saying this to him? You know, God could have just wiped out the people. He could have gone to Moses and says, this is what I'm going to do. This is this and this. And here are the new people. And I'm wiping out these people from you. He could have just told Moses um, that, that this is what was happening and not given him any opportunity to, to respond. But what Moses did is he prayed for the people and he told God, if you are going to blot those people out of your, their, na their names out of your book, then also blot my name out as well. Like if you're going to cause those people to perish, then I also will perish with them. So Moses interceded for the people. He prayed for them so that God would have mercy on them. Okay. So one of the, the interesting ways we see that God interacts with us, okay, is he, he, he wants to give us opportunities to intercede. And especially these holy people, he wants to give them opportunities to intercede. That God is expressing his anger and wrath toward a group, but he is willing to have mercy on them for the sake of the righteous people, for the sake of those people who are righteous that pray for them. Someone says, and maybe to teach us some concepts like how the presence of some righteous people among a bad nation would be a blessing to them and can cause God to have mercy on them. Yes, and, and this is what's going to happen. Um, is that God, is Abraham is going to start asking God, well, what if there's a few righteous people here in the city? Would you destroy the city? Okay, so we'll, we'll, we'll continue reading. Okay, so it says, and the Lord said, because the out, so he's speaking to Abraham, uh, and the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grave, I will go down and see whether they have done altogether according, uh, whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against uh, against it that has come to me and if not I will know okay so um, what is it that their sin their sin was um, sexual immorality homosexuality um, this was the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah okay and actually it's interesting that the name Sodom itself means burning up that's what the name Sodom means and and God was is going to send fire to destroy Sodom okay and and Gomorrah so it's going to become clear more uh, later on in the next chapter what exactly is the nature of their sin. Uh, but, but God is knowing their sin. He's coming to Abraham and he's telling him that these people's sin have, um, have, have you know, is very grave is what he said. Then the men turned away from there and went toward Sodom. So remember, he's still speaking with these three men, right? The Lord Christ is the one who is speaking and telling him all this. And then these other two men, okay, the two angels, they started walking toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord, okay? And Abraham came near and said, would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Okay, so this is like a very important question for us, right? Because oftentimes we feel like we are being punished for the actions of others who are wicked, right? Um, he asks this, should the destruction of the wicked affect the righteous? What do you guys think about this question? So the, should the destruction of the wicked affect the righteous? Okay, so, you know, we live in a world where there is a lot of wickedness, okay? And those who are righteous are affected by that wickedness, right? Um, but when it comes to God's judgment, 
you know, like I, I can think of some examples. So like, for instance, um, Daniel, the prophet, right? Daniel, the prophet, he lived in Judah at the time of the exile, where the, 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 the people of Judah were taken exile uh, to Babylon, right? And the reason they were taken exile is was it was a punishment by God to them. God told them, because you are unfaithful to me, because you worship idols, because you do this and this, and he's been warning them for generations, because you're doing this, I will take you to exile to Babylon. And certainly it happened, right? But does that mean that every single person who was living in Judah at the time was a wicked person? Certainly we know that Daniel was not. Daniel was a very, very righteous person, right? And yet Daniel was also taken to exile in Babylon, just like the rest, right? So what do you think about that? So someone said, all things worked for good for him at the end, which is true. And, and actually, God had a reason for wanting Daniel to be taken captive because God used Daniel to actually spread the word even in Babylon so that even some of the kings uh, and other people there believed in the Lord through Daniel. Okay, But I think it's important to distinguish between the judgment of God versus the consequences in the world, right? We might be caught up in, in, the, in the negative consequences of others, right? Like for instance, um, let's say uh, we are in a household uh, where we have parents that are very financially uh, foolish. They make foolish financial decisions. And for that reason, we don't have, uh, you know, we, 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 are, we are in great debt, let's say. We, we spend too much money. We're in great debt. I, as an individual, maybe let's say as a child in that household, um, I'm being very negatively affected by the poor choices of somebody else, right? But that's not a punishment on me. That's not a judgment that God is making on me. That is simply I'm being affected by the negative decisions of others. For instance, uh, a child who was born to a woman who was a drug addict, right? Is born a drug addict, born addicted to the same drugs because of the woman's addiction, that is a consequence of her mistake. That is not a judgment. That is not something against that baby, right? But it is a negative consequence that that baby must endure, right? So when it comes to judgment, right? Um, in, in Matthew 16, 27, it says, for the son of man will come in the glory of his father with his angels, and then he will reward each one according to his works. Each one will be judged according to their works specifically, right? They will not have the benefit of the good deeds of others, and they will not have the consequence of the bad deeds of others. Each one will have their own work judged, okay? And so here Abraham is asking God this question. Would you destroy the righteous with the wicked, okay? Now, in the Old Testament, okay, it was seen that like they didn't look at things from the spiritual perspective. They looked at things very much from the physical perspective. So from the physical perspective, right? If, if, if someone wants, like if, if God were to reward someone in the Old Testament, how would he reward him? He would reward him with long life, right? That was the reward that people understood. Whenever God was going to reward someone, whenever someone did righteously, right? God would reward him with long life, Okay. So in the mindset of an Old Testament person, right, like they, they don't, they're not thinking of it in the context that we in the New Testament think about. Like we think of it that our long life, quote unquote, is the eternal life with the Lord in heaven, right? So even though someone's life might get cut short here on earth, but their eternal life continues forever in heaven with the Lord, okay? So, so here from this mindset, this more like Old Testament mindset, right? To say that you destroy the righteous with the wicked in the physical sense, like, like, these, like these people, these righteous people are going to die, that is considered like a great judgment against them, okay? So, so God is saying what 
or, or so here in, in verse 24, or, or sorry, so let me read 23 again. It says, Abraham came near and said, saying to God, would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? When you destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, are you going to, are you going to destroy everybody? Right. Or not? He says, suppose there were 50 righteous within the city. Would you also destroy the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous, right? That were in it, right? What if there's 50 righteous? Are you going to destroy it or not? Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? So he's saying, like, if you're going to judge the people, right, judge those who are sinful, why would, would you also destroy the righteous people with them, right? So the Lord said, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sakes. Wow, he says, even if there is one, you know, if there's 50 righteous people in the city, then for their sake, I will spare the whole thing. Okay, I'll spare the whole thing. And actually it said, um, you know, it said that the, you know, God has spared and has mercy on the world for the sake of, you know, the, the monks and nuns that pray to him unceasingly in the monasteries and convents, praying for the mercy of the world, praying for the, for the Lord to have mercy on us, right? God is saying for the sake, for the intercession of certain righteous people, right? Simply because of their presence, I will bless the rest of the world because of them, right? And this is what we are to be. This is what is it we should be in the world as we are supposed to be a blessing for the rest of the world. Right? We are supposed to be a blessing because of our actions, because of our prayers, that God would have mercy on the world because of us, right? Just as these righteous people here were would be to the rest of the, the sinners in Sodom, they would be a blessing to them and they God would spare them for their sake. Then Abraham answered and said, Indeed, now I who am but dust and ashes have taken that upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose there were five less than the fifty righteous. Would you destroy all the city for the lack of five? So he's saying, what if there's 45? He said, if I find there 45, I will not destroy it. Okay. And he spoke to him yet again and said, suppose there should be 40 found there. So he said, I will not do it for the sake of 40. Then he said, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 should be found there. So he said, I will not do it if I find 30. And he said, indeed, now I have taken that upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 should be found there. So he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of 20. Then he said, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. But once more, suppose 10 should be found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of 10. So the Lord went his way as soon as he had finished speaking with Abraham and Abraham returned to his place. So you see how God had this, uh, Abraham had this conversation with God and he kept asking him, what if you were to have less and less and less righteous people there? Would you destroy it for those, for the despite those righteous people being there? And God's saying, no, 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 until he got down to 10 people, okay? And actually, in reality, they turned out to even be less than 10 righteous people there. And um, and and God's solution was to free, though, to, to, to let those righteous people escape. And he destroyed the rest of the city without them. And this is the family of Lot which we will um, read about next time, okay? So what do we learn here? We see how the prayers of Abraham were accepted by God. We see how God has mercy um, for the sake of the righteous people, okay? Um, we see, we see um, like, how in some cases God has mercy because of our actions. Like, for instance, when the Ninevites repented, God had mercy on them and he didn't destroy them. We see that in some cases God has uh, mercy based on prayer. For instance, the story that I said about Moses when he was uh, praying for the people, right? To not to blot out their names. Or the story of Moses and Joshua, where Moses is praying on the mountain and Joshua is fighting a battle in the valley and how God was allowing Joshua and the army to win as long as Moses was praying, right? So, so God accepts prayer. God accepts intercession and God accepts the righteousness of his people, okay? But like I said, in the end, there was not even the 10 righteous and God ended up destroying the city, but he allowed the family of Lot to escape before, um, before that happened, okay? So that's all the time we have for today. God willing, next time we will continue with chapter um, 19. And glory be to God forever, amen.
let's um, just conclude in a prayer. Uh, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O Lord, for your goodness and kindness and mercy upon us. Help us, O Lord, to learn all these important lessons that we can learn from your servant, Abraham. Help us, O God, to see his righteousness, his patience, his love, his obedience, and how he is quick to listen to you at all times and how faithful he is, O Lord, even when you promise him things that are difficult to understand. We ask, O God, that you allow us to put aside all of the details and the difficulties and to not seek to be in control of so many things in our life, but to see that you are the almighty God and to focus, O Lord, on how we are to walk blamelessly before you. And then this is our role and our function. Grant us, O Lord, a desire for you to draw closer to you and to know you, O Lord, at all times. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hear us as we pray thankfully, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus, our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever.